Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us this morning as we continue our uh, work through and look through the book of Luke and the series that we've been in, in the middle of for quite a long time. And it's so easy to uh, get discouraged and scared and uh, certainly in some very fearful times. Just, just this morning, I ran into a quote from a pastor named Ian Graham, and I want to start this morning with just this word of encouragement, the words that he wrote about where we are these days. He said, we are locked away, quarantined and isolated, and it feels like the world has come to an end, but we are an Easter people. It's dark now and how great the darkness, but dawn is coming and how much greater will the light shine? And so now we wait. So we are people of waiting and we are certainly people of Easter and people of the resurrection. So as we continue our look uh, at the book of Luke this morning, let's uh, do that with great hope that in the midst of uh, really unprecedented times in our generation for sure, that uh, we are being held fast by he who knows all and can do all. So we uh, continue our work in, in Luke this week. Let's do that with uh, that in mind. And, you know, this pandemic has, has put a whole different spin on a lot of things. And one, one of the things it's put a spin on are what we do with meals. It, so easy for years we would say, hey, let's grab some lunch or, hey, let's go to dinner. And uh, that's got a whole new twist to it now that we can't go in a place and do that anymore, and at least for a while. And so really food and meals together have been a huge part uh, of human life, actually. People have been gathering for years to share meals. And today's passage, there's a meal being shared. The entire scene, 24 verses in Luke chapter 14, the entire scene is uh, pictured of a dinner or maybe a, a lunch where people are gathered. But this is, as you can tell by the, the uh, title of the message, this is a very tense table. This is not going to bring up ideas of friendship and fellowship and togetherness and pleasantness. This is a, um, this is a very tense meal, and uh, we're going to look in very quickly and very closely at uh, this scene in 24 verses of a meal that Jesus was invited to. But before we look into the text, we're going to kind of spend the morning looking in the window of this meal uh, hosted by this man in which he invited Jesus. But let's quick reminder, there are two main parts of biblical interpretation, and one is um, looking at what the text said to the original hearer. And so, uh, and then the second one is like principles we can derive from the text in our cultural and historical context where we live. So two ideas of interpretation. So the, and going back to the first one, in this chapter, um, this is a very clear teaching to the nation of Israel that their salvation is not to be found in strict adherence to the law, that Christ is the answer, uh, the new covenant is in place, coming in place with the kingdom coming in the, in the person of Christ, and the message is real clear through this entire meal that the answer uh, is not found in the outward law, but in relationship with him. And then for us, we have an opportunity to look in on the scene really in three scenes uh, during this meal to, um, in this uh, Pharisee that hosted Jesus. And it shows us what some of the, one of the main markers of a life in Christ is, is made of, and that's a word called humility. So we're going to see the word humility, the idea of humility, or the lack thereof, all through uh, this passage today. And as we hopefully can learn some lessons in our context, in our culture, in our historical uh, moment where we are, even in the midst of this pandemic about uh, what humility really looks like in living out in a Christ-like, Christ-like ways. So my early career, fresh out of college, was in the trucking business, and part of my training for that was to do uh, uh, sales uh, as a sales rep. And so we would go have a meal with a customer. My boss or my mentor at that time would tell me a little bit about the, the guy, the person that, we were, that was hosting the meal. He would say, well, 
hey, this guy's a little bit hard to get to know, or this guy's really gregarious, or this guy really loves sports, or he would kind of prep me for who the host was going to be at this dinner and who the kind of guy we were dealing with. So let's do that with the host of this dinner we're looking at in Luke chapter 14. Uh, to set the stage, we need to remember something about the context here. So the nation of Israel, uh, God had promised them some, some great promises. They would have a land of their own, the promised land, we call it. So these, the people had three things that they held in great esteem. They had their land, they had their temple, and they had their law. So the, the, the nation of Israel had those three things very, very important to them. Well, here's what had happened. At the close of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament was 400 years. And in that 400 years, the, New Test, the Old Testament closes with the Babylonians uh, taking over Judah. And the Medes and the Persians sacked the Babylonians and took over. And then the Greeks, led by Alexander the Great, took over the world, world domination. And then from them, the Romans uh, took over. So when the New Testament opens up, the Roman, Roman government has complete control of Israel's land. Therefore, Israel's temple is always under threat. And they had one thing they were clinging to like crazy, and that was their law. And so the Pharisees were a group that arose uh, during the period when the Greeks were in charge. And the Greek, Greek culture and all the secularism and the immorality of Greek thought and Greek polytheism, religion was seeping in. And this group came up called the Pharisees. And they were laymen. They weren't ministers. They were laymen. They, were, they called themselves the guardian of the law. The Romans have our land. Therefore, our temple is under threat. But no one's going to take our law away from us. And so these Pharisees became very powerful because they came in, uh, became in charge of the local synagogues. Now, there was a temple, which a group called the Sadducees were in charge of the temple. But the Pharisees came up, and they were in charge of the local expressions of worship in Jewish life called the synagogues, a little bit like church planters in our day. But their job, their, their self-described job was to be keepers of the law, and they were not going to let anybody wrench that thing from their hands, especially this Jesus guy that had come on the scene. And so very, very militantly opposed to Jesus because he, they believed he was attempting to pull away from them the only thing they had left to hang on to. And so that's who we're dealing with in the meal today in Luke chapter 14. The chief, uh, chief of the Pharisees, a uh, ruler of the Pharisees, had hosted a meal. So uh, we're going to take a look at this idea of humility today, but we're going to look at it through the lens of three big obstacles uh, to us. Let's open up the, the text in Luke chapter 14 if you would, and we'll look at verses 1 through 6. We'll look at all three scenes separately because it all takes place in the same room. So verses 1 through 6. One Sabbath when he went, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. You can already feel the tension building. It says Jesus came to this uh, ruler of the Pharisees, this keeper of the law, guardian of the law's house. It says they were watching him carefully. That means it's a very insidious verb. It means to watch with suspicion. So the Sabbath day when they were meeting was a day that were all, all kinds of energy was around uh, the high point of the law was on the Sabbath day. So it was a big day of Sabbath law keeping. Therefore, there was a great potential for law breaking on the Sabbath. So Pharisees loved the Sabbath day gatherings where they could be a real watchdog to make sure everyone was obeying all these rules that, that they had made up. And so they were watching Jesus 
uh, like very, almost like with suspicion and, and, and lurking around just watching him like a hawk to make sure he did everything exactly right. So can feel the tension already uh, building the way they were watching him. And then a man with dropsy uh, showed up or was at the meal. And uh, dropsy is what we would call edema. The word uh, in the language means, uh, begins with the word hydro, it means water. He, it means a fluid retention problem. And uh, physicians will tell you often it comes as a secondary cause from like kidney trouble or heart trouble. But the man was swollen and had retained a lot of fluid. So you have to know something about this. Back in that day, the Pharisees had decided that a person with this condition uh, was in this condition because of immorality or if it was, they weren't immoral, they were unclean because they weren't able to get rid of uh, waste inside their body. So this person with dropsy was caught either way. He was either immoral or unclean or both. And so they had a perfect setup for him. So obviously this man was a plant. Scripture doesn't say that explicitly, but this is not the kind of guy a Pharisee would invite to a meal. And so um, here was Jesus. They were watching him like crazy to see what he would do. And uh, verse 4 is very illustrative of, of what he did. Um, excuse me. Uh, yeah, verse 4. Uh, he took him and healed him and sent him away. It's almost like a, a verse that's easy to overlook. But what the word here means that he took him, it's a very strong verb. It's the same verb used in Acts where uh, they seized Paul and Silas and threw them in, into prison. So they, Jesus grabbed this man and got a tourniquet hold on him, squeezed him like that, set him down, and the man was healed. It's an amazing uh, verse in Scripture that's so easy to overlook. But Jesus grabbed him, squeezed him, and healed him. And, and as if to say to him, look, you're a plant. You've been used by these guys. You're free to go. Uh, you don't have to live like this anymore in your body. You don't have to live like this anymore as an object to the Pharisees to use uh, to prove a point to set me up. So he sent him away and said, look, you're, you're free. If you'll notice in this text, Jesus is asked two questions in verse 3. He said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? That's a question of principle. Like just, hey, guys, in principle, is it lawful to heal? Is it lawful to set someone free uh, from, their, from their malady on the Sabbath or not. And then verse 5, uh, it's a question of practice. He, he said, let's get real practical here, guys. Which one of you having a son or an ox has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day wouldn't pull him out? So he puts him in a bind and says, on principle, do you think this is okay to set someone free on the Sabbath? And in your own practice, how you live, would you not do work, as you define it, on the Sabbath day in order to take care of something that was near and dear to you? Like this man is near and dear to me and not near and dear to you. So he puts them in the, the bind, expose their hypocrisy. And so these guys were very, very invested in having power, which is a huge block uh, to this idea of humility that we're uh, learning about today. So Jesus is basically saying to them, hey, you're looking at me, but you don't see me at all. You didn't see him and you don't see me. Uh, because your lust for power is blocking your humility. And when that happens to me, which happens often, uh, it blinds me to myself, to other people, to my motives, to what I'm doing things for. And it certainly uh, blinds me to what God is up to and God and his grace and his mercy. So uh, being present as opposed to being in power like these guys were and like I so often am, I forget that I too have spiritual dropsy at times and I need healing from him too and to be needy before him. Uh, the, the Pharisees kept their distance through their lust for power and Jesus is calling them to be present with him and present with this man 
And so often uh, we're pulled toward to be powerful and to look at a distance at the human condition, including our own, as opposed to being truly present. So the dinner's off to kind of a rough start, and you would hope it's going to get better, but it's going to get worse. Uh, so the second scene, uh, same place, Jesus, as if he asked them this questions in verse 5 and then in verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you will be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your friend, your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a thing called, we're going to call this section posturing. We're going to see how these people were posturing or life on the ladder. I'm going to show you an illustration in just a moment uh, about what this looks like. But in the meantime, when, when a person received an invitation from a Pharisee to come to a meal, that was like a big deal, and it was used as currency. So the idea was if, you, if you're a Pharisee and you ask me to a meal, the expectation is that I'm going to ask you to one. And so it's kind of a I scratch your back and you scratch mine kind of thing. And so people were invited to these were automatically an obligation to extend an invitation to the host to reciprocate the, the nicety. So it was kind of this, this circle of uh, obligation and fulfillment over and over and over in this world they were in. The, the configuration was often like in a horseshoe shape in which the, the uh, host would sit in the end of the horseshoe, the cross piece on the bottom as we're looking at it. And, and the closer you were to his left or right, the more important you were, the more status you had. And so uh, the further away up the horseshoe you sat, the, the lower level of honor that you would have. And if you remember back in Matthew 20, James and John's mother came to Jesus and said, Hey, uh, Lord, I would love it if my sons could sit to your right and to your left. And she was referring to this tradition here that was very familiar in that day about how the seating arrangements were. What she was saying was, would you please give my sons James and John uh, this, this place to sit of great honor where when they sit at the table in your kingdom, uh, they will be right next to you, the, the host. It was a, the idea. So it must have been pretty funny really to see how this happened. It said they were you know, posturing and looking around. It's almost like Pharisee Rome, uh, uh, musical chairs. They were walking around and milling around. And you know, when, when it's time to be seated, I just happened to be standing by this, this seat right next to the host. And it really would be pretty humorous to take a look at these guys posturing and kind of like you know, moving slowly when they got around, milling around the room when they got to the important seats and uh, hurrying by the other seats in the room. So it must have been pretty hilarious. To do that can, makes me wonder what Jesus must have been thinking. I'm pretty sure he wasn't doing any of that posturing. It must have been amazing to him. Here is the Messiah. Here's the coming king standing in a room. And all these people are posturing around and looking for a way to be powerful and to be next to the host. And it makes me wonder where, where did he end up sitting. And what a, what a picture of Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, where we see Jesus said he did not consider his godness something to be exploited, but humbled himself and made himself as a servant. So here's the king of the, of the universe, the one who created all of this, watching all of this happen with these people moving around, posturing themselves to be in the important places. So um, I'm going to show you an illustration. I'm going to put a slide up here to show you what's really going on with, with these folks 
There's this magical land, it's called Est. You see at the top of the slide there, the, and that's where I can finally get to, the, if I climb this ladder enough, I can get to this magical land. I can be the richest, the strongest, the smartest, the bravest, like I can be the superlative. And so if I can just get on this ladder, if I can just posture myself in a way uh, to where I can, I can get above that cloud up there, I just know that above that cloud, if I work hard enough, if I if I get enough uh, power, I can get up there where I don't have to be worried about the human condition anymore. I can be above it all, literally, up on that ladder. And the problem is when we do that, as you see to the, to the left of that, I end up living in a thing called reactivity, which means I have my eyes on other people more than I do on myself and certainly more than I do on God. So I, I live in a, in a reactive way, and people suddenly become competition, I began competing with people rather than loving people and really seeing people for who they are and the worth that God has given to them. And I'm constantly asking the question, how am I doing? How am I performing? How's it going? How do I look to other people? Am I close to the host at the table or am I not? Am I posturing, working hard enough uh, to make myself acceptable or to make myself uh, powerful? And then the pro- one of the problems comes in is that when I'm at the top of the ladder, when I'm near the top, in my own estimation, I can't help but look down on other people in judgment. And then when I'm a lower level of the ladder, further away from this magical land where I'm in charge, I look at the people above me with contempt. And so that's where these guys were trapped. And where we often get trapped in our human is comparing ourselves to other people. I'm either better than them or less than them, which means uh, if I'm posturing and moving away from humility, I'm going to be working really, really hard uh, to make sure I'm getting up that rung and doing whatever I have to do to get there. As opposed to on solid ground with a horizontal line, you see, as opposed to living on, on flat ground where I'm working with people and living with people, I'm not living in reactivity, but I'm responding emotionally and relationally and spiritually to them. And I'm, I'm not living in competition anymore. I'm living in a true cooperative effort like Scripture lines out the body of Christ is to be. So just an illustration to show you what posturing really looks like as we get on that ladder and climb for power in a place where I'm untouched by humanity or my, even by my own humanness. So if we look back at the text, um, we can uh, go back to the text here. Jesus says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus is saying, listen, get off the ladder of getting power. Get off the ladder of running over one another in order to not be touched by your own humanness and, um, and vulnerability. So and there's our word again. He says, humble yourself in order to be exalted. We're saying, uh, I had a, had a friend that told me just this past week that humility really is believing about myself what Scripture says about me. I am, I've been rescued from the dominion of darkness, left my own designs. I'm going to get back on that ladder. But uh, praise be to God in His grace that I can not have to be there as I'm telling the truth about me to me and to other people and living in vulnerable relationships and away from power. So the guys are posturing, people are posturing and looking for a place of power. So Jesus then moves us to the third and uh, kind of the longest in terms of the text uh, goes and he turns to the, to the host himself. He turns to the guy who invited him himself. Verse 12, he also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. 
But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, Jesus, said to him, uh, another parable, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Well, we mentioned earlier that it's not going to get any better, and this is not better at all. Tension continues to rise. Probably at this point, uh, things were so tense you, so tense you could uh, probably cut the atmosphere uh, with a knife. These are probably the most disturbing words of the entire meal, probably the most disturbing words Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and the, to, to the leader of the Pharisees here is probably in this text of what we've just covered. So Jesus says to him, first of all, verses 12 through 14, he sets a stage and says, look, turns to the host, the guy invited him and says, look, when you host a banquet, don't invite people that are going to be obligated to you. Don't invite the, the, the powerful people uh, who are going to be able to, to repay you in some way. Uh, invite those who are less fortunate. Uh, he meant that literally and also in terms of power. Hey, invite people who aren't after power. Invite people who don't make your image look better. Invite people that other people may not invite. If you want to truly live and truly be uh, a man of Scripture that you consider yourself to be, Jesus says to the host, invite those who are less fortunate and who are unable to, to pay you back. And we need to remember this was a, a, the, one of the pinnacles of Jewish social life is if you received an invitation from a Pharisee to come to a meal, that was a huge deal. An agricultural society, so you're scraping out a living in the Middle Eastern dirt and uh, raising food for your family, or maybe you're a shopkeeper or a merchant, uh, in a city and eking out a living for yourself. And either way, it was a, a daily battle to have food and to have income. So to have this huge, lavish feast banquet made for you and to be invited by, by a prominent person would be the highlight of your life. And so Jesus tells this parable. And going back to our initial principle, if you are one of the readers of this in the original audience, this is totally absurd. Like, who in the world would ever turn down a banquet like this, this lavish banquet in, in the home of a Pharisee? No one would, would, would ever do that. And so remember, these are people that, uh, that are uh, very knowledgeable of what we call the Old Testament. Um, and so the, what Jesus is referring to, they would instantly, as far as the banquet goes, they would instantly be reminded of what the prophet Isaiah wrote years before. Let me read it to you in Isaiah chapter 25, starting in verse 6. This is what they would have been thinking about when Jesus mentioned a banquet. Isaiah writes, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. 
And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And so these Pharisees would be well aware that Isaiah had written years before of a time when God's people would be part of a lavish banquet. And so the tension's pretty high in the room already. And so this guy, uh, verse 15, one of those reclined at the table with him, heard these things. He kind of blurted out, it, it appears, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is he's essentially toasting himself and toasting everyone there at the meal. He's kind of saying, man, isn't it going to be great? God's planned this banquet for folks like us that have worked hard and do things right and and uh, got all kinds of power and no needs, and we're, we're kind of God's chosen. And isn't it cool that he's going to throw this big banquet for us? And a very awkward moment. Uh, it's almost like he's, he's so confident in, in the resurrection that's coming and the banquet that's being prepared uh, because of his ancestry with Abraham and, and his uh, Judaism uh, that, he's, that they're going to be part of this banquet. And it's a very presumptuous statement, which is the title of this point, the presumption that he had, the presumption that the host had to invite who he invited uh, for obligation. It's a really, really uh, uncomfortable. And Jesus's response raises the discomfort level again after the guy says it. He points to in verses 16 through 20, we won't read them again, but as you skim verses 16 through 20, Jesus points out the craziness, the absurdity Uh, of a person receiving this invitation because what would happen? An invitation would go out and then the preparation would have to be made. Animals would have to be slaughtered and uh, food to be prepared. So the invitation would go. It's almost like a save the date that we do. A save the date would go out. Then when everything was prepared, he would go back and say, okay, the feast is ready. Come on, we're, we're ready to go. And so the absurdity is that people would not be anticipating centering their lives around getting to go to this banquet. And instead, Jesus paints this crazy picture in this parable that people who would have been preparing to go to this lavish feast went, nah, I, I bought some livestock. I got married. I got, I got stuff going on. I can't really make it. And uh, Jesus is pointing out like that just would not happen. So verses 21 and 22, uh, the servants came and said, hey, the, the people we invited, sir, they're, they're all RSVPing no, can't make it. And the, serv- the, uh, the, the guy inviting them in the parable is going, you got to be kidding me. Well, okay, well then go find lame, blind, go find those that are less fortunate, invite them to come. And the guy has to go, well, sir, we, uh, we, we've already done that too. So we've already looked for, for the places in kind of the, the worst parts of town to come and, and that we've, everyone has come that can. So then it's almost like the host goes, okay, I'll tell you what, let's get crazy. Let's go to the far reaches. Let's go to the highways and hedges and uh, let's invite people that no one would ever think about inviting. Let, let's go all the way out. And, um, so here's how this worked. The picture is this, that, that uh, Jewish people did not have fences around their property. They didn't have fences around their, their garden spots, things like that. And so when he refers to taking them out to the highways and hedges, he's talking about way out, way out uh, in the country where the absolute destitute people live, where they went out from the center of the city uh, and, and uh, out into what you know, the old writers call the heathen world, like a world that, that good, good people like these folks would never, never think about going to. The, the host says, go out to the far reaches and find those who are utterly and completely uh, forgotten, who would never, ever, ever get an invitation. 
and said, we're going to compel them to come. Verse 23, compel people to come. Um, Mark Lloyd-Jones called this an insistent hospitality to compel them. So the word doesn't mean grab them and make them come. The word means to continue to be insistent. So I'll give you a little bonus here. This thing, presumption, is what we can call shamelessness. People who are so, these folks are so unaware of the great mercy and grace that's been offered to them, um, that the host here, he, he just presumes that he's going to be part of this great banquet. And then the people who have been invited to come, who had the great privilege of the invitation, turned it down. That's a thing called shamelessness. Like they don't recognize their great need and great privilege and gratitude that they have to receive such an invitation. And then the other end of the continuum of that is a thing called toxic shame. There's one word for it. These are folks who are out in the highways and hedges, and uh, they came to receive the invitation. And the word compel there means they had, the people had to insist that they come. They were, no, I'm defective, I'm no good, I'm poor, or I'm blind, or lame, or I'm destitute. And there's no way you would want me at such a banquet like that. I, I, I can't do that. And so the, the people are saying, no, 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 please, please come. We, we want you to be here. So toxic shame will take us out of being able to receive invitations from God and even invitations from other people for relationship uh, because of this overall uh, kind of compelling uh, view of myself as less than or defective. It's somehow toxic shame says somehow because I'm so human, because I make mistakes, because I'm limited, uh, I don't deserve to be a part of all this, this lavish banquet that God has has gotten for me, while the shameless and prideful say, nah, no thanks, I'll take it or leave it. I'd rather go somewhere where I can have a little bit more power and kind of do my own thing. So a real lesson there on how this idea of, of unhealthy shame seeps in on two ends of the same continuum, shamelessness, and when shame gets very, very toxic. And so too flawed to be a part of it. So we've talked about humility, the overarching idea that one of the markers of Christ-likeness is humility. And all three of these scenes have pointed to how uh, power and posturing and now presumption can keep us from, uh, this, from the idea of being, uh, having humility or being humble. So I mentioned earlier that one of the definitions of that my friend uh, Darren Tyler shared with me this past week is uh, my, my view of me being what Scripture says about me. So let's look very quickly at three aspects of humility, three words to write down. First aspect of humility is being conscious of other people. I'm conscious there are other people in the world, conscious of my own neediness, and then conscious that there are other people in the world too. The, the Pharisees in the first scene in particular had lost sight of the fact that people are people. People needed attention. The man with edema and Jesus himself were looked at as objects by them. They had lost consciousness of other people. And then developing a conscience coming out of being conscious of people. Conscience just says, don't do harm. Don't commit sin. Be sure you're paying attention to that voice inside of you, the Holy Spirit, saying, don't do that. It's called conviction. And then coming from having a conscience with people, a conscience in how I'm dealing with people, comes this idea of empathy. People with humility have empathy. I've walked in others' shoes, and I can recognize that this person, I know that I'm a needy creature, and this person might be needy too. And so I develop an empathy to say, look, I know what it's like to be in the human condition. I know what it's like to mess up. I know what it's like to be destitute, to have dropsy. I know, I know what it's like to be very, very, very needy and vulnerable. So I can have empathy for my fellow man. So humble people are conscious of other people being in the world, develop a conscience about how they live with each other, and then having an empathy for what it's like to be 
to be human. And people who lack humility, and that's me a lot, uh, I forget those three things. I've been a Atlanta Braves fan my whole life growing up uh, down that, that neck of the woods. And one of my favorite players in the history of that team is a guy named Fred McGriff. And uh, Fred McGriff was known, honestly known, as being a very humble player, a pro athlete who had great humility. I'll give you some numbers. Fred McGriff had as many home runs as Lou Gehrig. He had a higher slugging percentage than Ernie Banks. He had a higher on-base percentage than Tony Gwynn, one of the greatest hitters of all time, and a a higher on-base percentage than maybe the greatest player in the game, Hank Aaron. So McGriff's statistics are huge, uh, and yet he was not asked to be in the Hall of Fame. He's not been in the Baseball Hall of Fame. A reporter asked him if he was upset about not making it. Here's what Fred McGriff said. He said, no way. I was just happy to make it to the majors. You have to remember, I got cut from my high school baseball team. So McGriff is saying something very important. He's saying, I remember where I came from. I remember from, I know the bounty of being able to play Major League Baseball for, for many, many years. And I have great memory of a day when I was very much in need. And so whatever I have gained playing pro baseball has been, has been a blessing. And that's a thing called humble gratitude. And so... Uh, these folks had forgotten in their power and their posturing and presumption and what we've talked about today. They forgot having been a receiver of such a wealth of grace and mercy and invitation and had walked away from the very thing they thought they already had. So uh, haven't we all um, in some ways been cut from the high school team? And uh, now those of us who know Christ are able uh, to say, but I've been redeemed and delivered uh, from that. And yet I have memory much like Uh, Paul had, uh, Jeff mentioned earlier, I have memory of when I was in great need of him as well. So as we move to a uh, so what, I want to ask you to think about uh, some things we've talked about today. Lots of things on the table, uh, no pun intended with the the meal scenario, but uh, some of the things we've talked about of of, uh, choosing power, having power uh, over relationship with people and power over that and then posturing how I can so easily move into a place of positioning myself in a way to have power and to be in constant competition with other people and then presumption. I can see myself as one of the haves and all others as have nots and that I can walk in in pride rather than the humility that that Jesus has called us to and is calling these folks to. So take just a few moments to find where you belong in what we've talked about today. Father, we're grateful, 
that you're in your grace and in your mercy, you have called us your own. So I pray as we walk this week, we'd be mindful of who we are in you. Pray that we would think back on this meal in which you taught so powerfully uh, who you are and uh, how precious we are to you at the same time can so easily move into places that are unhealthy and uh, unspiritual and prideful. Pray that we would be mindful of uh, exalting you this week instead of ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So thank you for joining us this week and hope this week is uh, filled with uh, recognition of grace and mercy and we would live as a very, very grateful people. Thank you for, having, for uh, joining us this week.